Chapter Thirty Six of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens is a very short one and may appear of no great importance in its place, but it should be read notwithstanding as a sequel to the last and a key to the one that will follow when its time arrives. And so you are resolved to be my travelling companion this morning, eh? said the doctor as Harry Maylie joined him and Oliver at the breakfast table. Why, you are not in the same mind or intention two half hours together. "'You will tell me a different tale one of these days,' said Harry, colouring without any perceptible reason. "'I hope I may have good cause to do so,' replied Mr. Losburn, "'though I confess I don't think I shall. But yesterday morning you had made up your mind in a great hurry to stay here, and to accompany your mother like a dutiful son to the seaside. Before noon you announced that you were going to do me the honour of accompanying me as far as I go on your road to London, and at night you urged me with great mystery to start before the ladies are stirring.' The consequence of which is that young Oliver here is pinned down to his breakfast when he ought to be ranging the meadows after botanical phenomena of all kinds. Too bad, isn't it, Oliver? I should have been very sorry not to have been at home when you and Mr. Maylie went away, sir, rejoined Oliver. That's a fine fellow, said the doctor. You shall come and see me when you return. But to speak seriously, Harry, has any communication from the great knobs produced this sudden anxiety on your part to be gone? The great knobs, replied Harry, under which designation I presume you include my most stately uncle, have not communicated with me at all since they have been here, nor at this time of year is it likely that anything would occur to render necessary my immediate attendance among them. Well, said the doctor, you are a queer fellow. But of course they will get you into Parliament at the election before Christmas, and these sudden shiftings and changes are no bad preparation for political life. There's something in that. Good training is always desirable, whether the race be for place, cup, or sweepstakes." Harry Maylie looked as if he could have followed up this short dialogue by one or two remarks that would have staggered the doctor not a little, but he contented himself with saying, "'We shall see,' and pursue the subject no further. The post-chaise drove up to the door shortly afterwards, and Giles coming in for the luggage, the good doctor bustled out to see it packed. "'Oliver!' said Harry Maylie in a low voice. Let me speak a word with you." Oliver walked into the window recess to which Mr. Maylie beckoned him, much surprised at the mixture of sadness and boisterous spirits which his whole behaviour displayed. "'You can write well now,' said Harry, laying his hand upon his arm. "'I hope so, sir,' replied Oliver. "'I shall not be at home again, perhaps, for some time. I wish you would write to me, say, once a fortnight, every alternate Monday, to the General Post Office in London. Will you?' Oh, certainly, sir. I shall be proud to do it," exclaimed Oliver, greatly delighted with the commission. I should like to know how—how how my mother and Miss Maylie are," said the young man. And you can fill up a sheet by telling me what walks you take, and what you talk about, and whether she—they, I mean—seem happy and quite well. You understand me?" Oh, quite, sir, quite," replied Oliver. I would rather you did not mention it to them," said Harry, hurrying over his words, because it might make my mother anxious to write to me oftener, and it is a trouble and worry to her. Let it be a secret between you and me, and mind you tell me everything. I depend upon you." Oliver, quite elated and honoured by a sense of his importance, faithfully promised to be secret and explicit in his communications. Mr. Maylie took leave of him, with many assurances of his regard and protection. The doctor was in the chaise. Giles, who it had been arranged should be left behind, held the door open in his hand, and the women-servants were in the garden looking on. 
Harry cast one slight glance at the latticed window and jumped into the carriage. "'Drive on!' he cried. "'Hard, fast, full gallop! Nothing short of flying will keep pace with me to-day!' "'Hello!' cried the doctor, letting down the front glass in a great hurry and shouting to the postillion. "'Something very short of flying will keep pace with me. Do you hear?' Jingling and clattering till distance rendered its noise inaudible, and its rapid progress only perceptible to the eye, the vehicle wound its way along the road, almost hidden in a cloud of dust, now wholly disappearing, and now becoming visible again, as intervening objects or the intricacies of the way permitted. It was not until even the dusty cloud was no longer to be seen that the gazers dispersed. And there was one looker-on who remained with eyes fixed upon the spot where the carriage had disappeared long after it was many miles away, for behind the white curtain which had shrouded her from view when Harry raised his eyes towards the window sat Rose herself. "'He seems in high spirits and happy,' she said at length. "'I feared for a time he might be otherwise. I was mistaken. I am very, very glad.' Tears are signs of gladness as well as grief. But those which coursed down Rosa's face as she sat pensively at the window, still gazing in the same direction, seemed to tell more of sorrow than of joy. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens In which the reader may perceive a contrast, not uncommon in matrimonial cases. Mr. Bumble sat in the workhouse parlour, with his eyes moodily fixed on the cheerless grate, whence, as it was summer-time, no brighter gleam proceeded than the reflection of certain sickly rays of the sun, which were sent back from its cold and shining surface. A paper fly-cage dangled from the ceiling, to which he occasionally raised his eyes in gloomy thought, and, as the heedless insects hovered round the gaudy network, Mr. Bumble would heave a deep sigh while a more gloomy shadow overspread his countenance. Mr. Bumble was meditating. It might be that the insects brought to mind some painful passage in his own past life. Nor was Mr. Bumble's gloom the only thing calculated to awaken a pleasing melancholy in the bosom of a spectator. There were not wanting other appearances, and those closely connected with his own person, which announced that a great change had taken place in the position of his affairs. The laced coat and the cocked hat, where were they? He still wore knee-breeches and dark cotton stockings on his nether limbs, but they were not the breeches. His coat was wide-skirted, and in that respect like the coat, but oh, how different! The mighty cocked hat was replaced by a modest round one. Mr. Bumble was no longer a beadle. There are some promotions in life which, independent of the more substantial rewards they offer, acquire peculiar value and dignity from the coats and waistcoats connected with them. A field-marshal has his uniform, a bishop his silk apron, a councillor his silk gown, a beadle his cocked hat. Strip the bishop of his apron or the beadle of his hat and lace, what are they? Men, mere men. Dignity and even holiness too sometimes are more questions of coat and waistcoat than some people imagine. Mr. Bumble had married Mrs. Corney and was master of the workhouse. Another beadle had come into power. On him the cocked hat, gold-laced coat and staff had all three descended. "'And to-morrow two months it was done,' said Mr. Bumble with a sigh. "'It seems a age.' 
and Mr. Bumble might have meant that he had concentrated a whole existence of happiness into the short space of eight weeks. But the sigh, there was a vast deal of meaning in the sigh. "'I sold myself,' said Mr. Bumble, pursuing the same train of reflection, "'for six teaspoons, a pair of sugar-tongs, and a milk-pot, with a small quantity of second-hand furniture and twenty pound in money. I went very reasonable. Cheap. Dirt cheap.' "'Cheap!' cried a shrill voice in Mr. Bumble's ear. "'You would have been dear at any price, and dear enough I paid for you, Lord above knows that.' Mr. Bumble turned and encountered the face of his interesting consort, who, imperfectly comprehending the few words she had overheard of his complaint, had hazarded the foregoing remark at a venture. Uh, "'Mrs. Bumble, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, with a sentimental sternness. "'Well,' cried the lady. "'Have the goodness to look at me,' said Mr. Bumble fixing his eyes upon her. If she stands such a eye as that, said Mr. Bumble to himself, she can stand anything. It is a eye I never knew to fail with paupers. If it fails with her, my power is gone. Whether an exceedingly small expansion of eye be sufficient to quell paupers, who, being lightly fed, are in no very high condition, or whether the late Mrs. Corney was particularly proof against eagle glances, are matters of opinion. The matter of fact is that the matron was in no way overpowered by Mr. Bumble's scowl, but on the contrary treated it with disdain, and even raised a laugh thereat which sounded as though it were genuine. On accounting this most unexpected sound, Mr. Bumble looked first incredulous and afterwards amazed. He then relapsed into his former state, nor did he rouse himself until his attention was again awakened by the voice of his partner. "'Are you going to sit there snoring all day?' inquired Mrs. Bumble. "'I am going to sit here as long as I think proper, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble, "'and although I was not snoring, I shall snore, gape, sneeze, laugh, or cry, as the humour strikes me, such being my prerogative.' "'Your prerogative?' sneered Mrs. Bumble, with ineffable contempt. "'I said the word, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble. "'The prerogative of a man is to command.' "'And what's the prerogative of a woman, in the name of goodness?' cried the relict of Mr. Corney, deceased. "'It to obey, ma'am,' thundered Mr. Bumble. "'Your late unfortunate husband should have taught it you, and then perhaps he might have been alive now. I wish he was, poor man!' Mrs. Bumble, seeing at a glance that the decisive moment had now arrived, and that a blow struck for the mastership on one side or other, it must necessarily be final and conclusive, no sooner heard this allusion to the dead and gone than she dropped into a chair, and with a loud scream that Mr. Bumble was a hard-hearted brute, fell into a paroxysm of tears. But tears were not the things to find their way to Mr. Bumble's soul. His heart was waterproof. Like washable beaver hats that improve with rain, his nerves were rendered stouter and more vigorous by showers of tears, which, being tokens of weakness, and so far tacit admissions of his own power, pleased and exalted him. He eyed his good lady with looks of great satisfaction, and begged in an encouraging manner that she should cry her hardest, the exercise being looked upon by the faculty as strongly conducive to health. It opens the lungs, washes the countenance, exercises the eyes, and softens down the temper said Mr. Bumble, so cry away. As he discharged himself of this pleasantry, Mr. Bumble took his hat from a peg, and putting it on rather rakishly on one side, as a man might who felt he had asserted his superiority in a becoming manner, thrust his hands into his pockets, and sauntered towards the door. 
with much ease and waggishness depicted in his whole appearance. Now Mrs. Corney that was had tried the tears because they were less troublesome than a manual assault, but she was quite prepared to make trial of the latter mode of proceeding, as Mr. Bumble was not long in discovering. The first proof he experienced of the fact was conveyed in a hollow sound, immediately succeeded by the sudden flying off of his hat to the opposite end of the room. This preliminary proceeding laying bare his head, the expert lady, clasping him tightly round the throat with one hand, inflicted a shower of blows, dealt with singular vigour and dexterity, upon it with the other. This done, she created a little variety by scratching his face and tearing his hair, and, having by this time inflicted as much punishment as she deemed necessary for the offence, she pushed him over a chair which was luckily well situated for the purpose, and defied him to talk about his prerogative again if he dared. "'Get up,' said Mrs. Bumble, in a voice of command, "'and take yourself away from here, unless you want me to do something desperate.' Mr. Bumble rose with a very rueful countenance, wondering much what something desperate might be. Picking up his hat, he looked towards the door. "'Are you going?' demanded Mrs. Bumble. "'Certainly, my dear, certainly,' rejoined Mr. Bumble, making a quicker motion towards the door. "'I didn't intend to. I'm going, my dear.' "'You are so very violent that really I—' At this instant Mrs. Bumble stepped hastily forward to replace the carpet, which had been kicked up in the scuffle. Mr. Bumble immediately darted out of the room, without bestowing another thought on his unfinished sentence, leaving the late Mrs. Corney in full possession of the field. Mr. Bumble was fairly taken by surprise and fairly beaten. He had a decided propensity for bullying, derived no inconsiderable pleasure from the exercise of petty cruelty, and consequently was, it is needless to say, a coward. This is by no means a disparagement to his character, for many official personages who are held in high respect and admiration are the victims of similar infirmities. The remark is made, indeed, rather in his favour than otherwise, and with a view of impressing the reader with a just sense of his qualifications for office. But the measure of his degradation was not yet full. After making a tour of the house, and thinking for the first time that the poor laws really were too hard on people, and that men who ran away from their wives, leaving them chargeable to the parish, ought in justice to be visited with no punishment at all, but rather rewarded as meritorious individuals who had suffered much, Mr. Bumble came to a room where some of the female paupers were usually employed in washing the parish linen, where the sound of voices in conversation now proceeded. Ahem, said Mr. Bumble, summoning up all his native dignity. These women at least shall continue to respect the prerogative. Hello, hello there. What do you mean by this noise, you hussies? With these words Mr. Bumble opened the door, and walked in with a very fierce and angry manner, which was at once exchanged for a most humiliated and cowering air, as his eyes unexpectedly rested on the form of his lady wife. Am I dear? said Mr. Bumble. No, I didn't know you were here. Didn't know I was here, repeated Mr. Bumble. What do you do here? "'I thought they were talking rather too much to be doing their work properly, my dear,' replied Mr. Bumble, glancing distractedly at a couple of old women at the wash-tub, who were comparing notes of admiration at the workhouse master's humility. "'You thought they were talking too much,' said Mrs. Bumble. "'What business is it of yours?' "'Why, my dear,' urged Mr. Bumble submissively. "'What business is it of yours?' demanded Mrs. Bumble again. "'It's very true, your matron here, my dear,' submitted Mr. Bumble. "'But I thought you mightn't be in the way just then.' "'I'll tell you what,' 
Mr. Bumble, returned his lady, we don't want any of your interference. You're a great deal too fond of poking your nose into things that don't concern you, making everybody in the house laugh the moment your back is turned, and making yourself look like a fool every hour in the day. Be off, come. Mr. Bumble, seeing with excruciating feelings the delight of the two old paupers, who were tittering together most rapturously, hesitated for an instant. Mrs. Bumble, whose patience brooked no delay, caught up a bowl of soap-suds, and motioning him towards the door, ordered him instantly to depart, on pain of receiving the contents upon his portly person. What could Mr. Bumble do? He looked dejectedly round, and slunk away, and as he reached the door the titterings of the paupers broke into a shrill chuckle of irrepressible delight. It wanted but this. He was degraded in their eyes. He had lost caste and station before the very paupers. He had fallen from all the height and pomp of beadleship to the lowest depth of the most snubbed hen-peckery. "'All in two months,' said Mr. Bumble, filled with dismal thoughts. Two months! No more than two months ago I was not only my own master but everybody else's, so far as the parochial workhouse was concerned, and now—it was too much. Mr. Bumble boxed the ears of the boy who opened the gate for him, for he had reached the portal in his reverie and walked distractedly into the street. He walked up one street and down another until exercise had abated the first passion of his grief, and then the revulsion of feeling made him thirsty. He passed a great many public-houses, but at length paused before one in a byway, whose parlour, as he gathered from a hasty peep over the blinds, was deserted, save by one solitary customer. It began to rain heavily at the moment. This determined him. Mr. Bumble stepped in, and ordering something to drink, as he passed the bar, entered the apartment into which he had looked from the street. The man who was seated there was tall and dark, and wore a large cloak. He had the air of a stranger, and seemed, by a certain haggardness in his look as well as by the dusty soils on his dress, to have travelled some distance. He eyed Bumble askance as he entered, but scarcely deigned to nod his head in acknowledgment of his salutation. Mr. Bumble had quite dignity enough for two, supposing even that the stranger had been more familiar, so he drank his gin and water in silence and read the paper with a great show of pomp and circumstance. It so happened, however, as it will happen very often when men fall into company under such circumstances, that Mr. Bumble felt every now and then a powerful inducement, which he could not resist, to steal a look at the stranger, and that whenever he did so, he withdrew his eyes in some confusion to find that the stranger was at that moment stealing a look at him. Mr. Bumble's awkwardness was enhanced by the very remarkable expression of the stranger's eye, which was keen and bright, but shadowed by a scowl of distrust and suspicion, unlike anything he had ever observed before, and repulsive to behold. When they had encountered each other's glance several times in this way, the stranger, in a harsh, deep voice, broke silence. "'Were you looking for me?' he said, when you peered in at the window. "'Not that I am aware of, unless you're Mr.' Here Mr. Bumble stopped short, for he was curious to know the stranger's name, and thought in his impatience he might supply the blank. "'I see you are not,' said the stranger, an expression of quiet sarcasm playing about his mouth. "'Or you'd have known my name. You don't know it. I would recommend you not to ask for it.' Oh, "'I meant no harm, young man,' observed Mr. Bumble majestically. "'And have done none.' said the stranger. Another silence succeeded this short dialogue, which was again broken by the stranger. "'I have seen you before, I think,' said he. "'You were differently dressed at that time, and I only passed you in the street, but I should know you again. 
You were a beadle here once, were you not?' "'I was,' said Mr. Bumble, in some surprise. "'A parochial beadle.' "'Just so,' rejoined the other, nodding his head. "'It was in that character I saw you. What are you now?' "'Master of the workhouse,' rejoined Mr. Bumble, slowly and impressively, to check any undue familiarity the stranger might otherwise assume. A "'Master of the workhouse, young man.' "'You have the same eye to your own interest that you always had, I doubt not,' resumed the stranger, keenly looking into Mr. Bumble's eyes as he raised them in astonishment at the question. "'Don't scruple to answer freely, man. I know you pretty well, you see.' "'I suppose a married man,' replied Mr. Bumble, shading his eyes with his hand, and surveying the stranger from head to foot in evident perplexity, "'is not more averse to turning an honest penny when he can than a single one.' Parochial officers are not so well paid that they can afford to refuse any little extra fee when it comes to them in a civil and proper manner." The stranger smiled and nodded his head again, as much to say he had not mistaken his man. Then he rang the bell. "'Fill this glass again,' he said, handing Mr. Bumble's empty tumbler to the landlord. "'Let it be strong and hot. You like it so, I suppose?' "'Not <laughs> too strong,' replied Mr. Bumble, with a delicate cough. "'You understand what that means, landlord,' said the stranger dryly. The host smiled, disappeared, and shortly afterwards returned with a steaming jorum, of which the first gulp brought the water to Mr. Bumble's eyes. "'Now, listen to me,' said the stranger, after closing the door and window. "'I came down to this place to-day to find you out. And by one of those chances which the devil throws in the way of his friends sometimes, you walked into the very room I was sitting in while you were uppermost in my mind.' I want some information from you. I don't ask you to give it for nothing, slight as it is. Put up that to begin with." As he spoke he pushed a couple of sovereigns across the table to his companion, carefully as though unwilling that the clinking of money should be heard without. When Mr. Bumble had scrupulously examined the coins to see that they were genuine, and had put them up with much satisfaction in his waistcoat pocket, he went on. Carry your memory back. Let me see. Twelve years last winter. "'It's a long time,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Very good. I've done it.' "'The scene, the workhouse.' "'Good.' "'And the time night?' "'Yes.' "'And the place, the crazy hole, wherever it was, in which miserable drabs brought forth the life and health so often denied to themselves, gave birth to puling children for the parish to rear, and hither shame, rot him in the grave.' "'The lying-in room, I suppose,' said Mr. Bumble, not quite following the stranger's excited description. "'Yes,' said the stranger. "'A boy was born there.' "'A many boys,' observed Mr. Bumble, shaking his head despondingly. "'A murrin on the young devils,' cried the stranger. "'I speak of one, a meek-looking, pale-faced boy who was prenticed down here to a coffin-maker. I wish he had made his coffin and screwed his body in it, and who afterwards ran away to London, as it was supposed.' "'Why, you mean Oliver, young Twist,' said Mr. Bumble. "'I remember him, of course.' There wasn't an obstinate young rascal. It's not of him I want to hear. I've heard enough of him," said the stranger, stopping Mr. Bumble in the outset of a tirade on the subject of poor Oliver's vices. It's of a woman, the hag that nursed his mother. Where is she? Where is she? said Mr. Bumble, whom the gin and water had rendered facetious. It would be hard to tell. There's no midwifery there, whichever place she's gone to. So I suppose she's out of employment anyway. "'What do you mean?' demanded the stranger sternly. "'That she died last winter,' rejoined Mr. Bumble. 
The man looked fixedly at him when he had given this information, and although he did not withdraw his eyes for some time afterwards, his gaze gradually became vacant and abstracted, and he seemed lost in thought. For some time he appeared doubtful whether he ought to be relieved or disappointed by the intelligence, but at length he breathed more freely, and withdrawing his eyes observed that it was no great matter. With that he rose as if to depart. But Mr. Bumble was cunning enough, and he at once saw that an opportunity was opened for the lucrative disposal of some secret in the possession of his better half. He well remembered the night of old Sally's death, which the occurrences of that day had given him good reason to recollect as the occasion on which he had proposed to Mrs. Corney, and although that lady had never confided to him the disclosure of which she had been the solitary witness, he had heard enough to know that it related to something that had occurred in the old woman's attendance, as workhouse nurse, upon the young mother of Oliver Twist. Hastily calling this circumstance to mind, he informed the stranger with an air of mystery that one woman had been closeted with the old harridan shortly before she died, and that she could, as he had reason to believe, throw some light on the subject of his inquiry. "'How can I find her?' said the stranger, thrown off his guard, and plainly showing that all his fears, whatever they were, were aroused afresh by this intelligence. "'Only through me,' rejoined Mr. Bumble. "'When?' cried the stranger hastily. "'Tomorrow,' rejoined Bumble. "'At nine in the evening,' said the stranger, producing a scrap of paper and writing down upon it an obscure address by the waterside, in characters that betrayed his agitation. "'At nine in the evening bring her to me here. I needn't tell you to be secret. It's your interest.' With these words he led the way to the door, after stopping to pay for the liquor that had been drunk. Shortly remarking that the roads were different, he departed, without more ceremony than an emphatic repetition of the hour of appointment for the following night. On glancing at the address the parochial functionary observed that it contained no name. The stranger had not gone far, so he made after him to ask it. "'What do you want?' cried the man, turning quickly round as Bumble touched him on the arm. "'Following me?' "'Only to ask a question,' said the other, pointing to the scrap of paper. "'What name do I ask for?' "'Monks,' rejoined the man and strode hastily away. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Containing an account of what passed between Mr. and Mrs. Bumble and Mr. Monks at their nocturnal interview. It was a dull, close, overcast summer evening. The clouds, which had been threatening all day, spread out in a dense and sluggish mass of vapour, already yielded large drops of rain, and seemed to presage a violent thunderstorm, when Mr. and Mrs. Bumble, turning out of the main street of the town, directed their course towards a scattered little colony of ruinous houses, distant from it some mile and a half or thereabouts, and erected on a low, unwholesome swamp bordering upon the river. They were both wrapped in old and shabby outer garments, which might perhaps serve the double purpose of protecting their persons from the rain and sheltering them from observation. The husband carried a lantern, from which, however, no light yet shone, and trudged on a few paces in front, as though the way being dirty, to give his wife the benefit of treading in his heavy footprints. They went on in profound silence. Every now and then Mr. Bumble relaxed his pace, and turned his head as if to make sure that his helpmate was following. Then, discovering that she was close at his heels, he mended his rate of walking and proceeded at a considerable increase of speed towards the place of destination. 
It was far from being a place of doubtful character, for it had long been known as the residence of none but low ruffians who, under various pretences of living by their labour, subsisted chiefly on plunder and crime. It was a collection of mere hovels, some hastily built with loose bricks, others of old worm-eaten ship-timber, jumbled together without any attempt at order or arrangement, and planted for the most part within a few feet of the river's bank. A few leaky boats drawn up on the mud and made fast to the dwarf wall which skirted it, and here and there an oar or coil of rope, appeared at first to indicate that the inhabitants of these miserable cottages pursued some avocation on the river, but a glance at the shattered and useless condition of the articles thus displayed would have led a passer-by without much difficulty to the conjecture that they were disposed there rather for the preservation of appearances than with any view to their actually being employed. In the heart of this cluster of huts and skirting the river which its upper stories overhung, stood a large building, formerly used as a manufactory of some kind. It had in its day probably furnished employment to the inhabitants of the surrounding tenements, but it had long since gone to ruin. The rat, the worm, and the action of the damp had weakened and rotted the piles on which it stood, and a considerable portion of the building had already sunk down into the water while the remainder, tottering and bending over the dark stream, seemed to wait a favourable opportunity of following its old companion, and involving itself in the same fate. It was before this ruinous building that the worthy couple paused, as the first peal of distant thunder reverberated in the air and the rain commenced pouring violently down. "'The place should be somewhere here,' said Bumble, consulting a scrap of paper in his hand. "'Hello there!' cried a voice from above. Following the sound Mr. Bumble raised his head and descried a man looking out of a door breast-high on the second story. "'Stand still a minute!' cried the voice. "'I'll be with you directly.' With which the head disappeared and the door closed. "'Is that the man?' asked Mr. Bumble's good lady. Mr. Bumble nodded in the affirmative. "'Then mind what I told you,' said the matron, "'and be careful to say as little as you can, or you'll betray us at once.' Mr. Bumble, who had eyed the building with very rueful looks, was apparently about to express some doubts relative to the advisability of proceeding any further with the enterprise just then, when he was prevented by the appearance of monks, who opened a small door near which they stood, and beckoned them inwards. "'Come in,' he cried impatiently, stamping his foot on the ground. "'Don't keep me here!' The woman, who had hesitated at first, walked boldly in, without any other invitation. Mr. Bumble, who was ashamed or afraid to lag behind, followed, obviously very ill at ease and with scarcely any of that remarkable dignity which was usually his chief characteristic. "'What the devil made you stand there lingering in the wet?' said Monks, turning round, and addressing Bumble, after he had bolted the door behind them. "'We—we we were only cooling ourselves,' stammered Mr. Bumble, looking apprehensively about him. "'Cooling yourselves?' retorted Monks. Not all the rain that ever fell or ever will fall will put as much of hell-fires out as a man can carry about with him. You won't cool yourself so easily. Don't think it." With this agreeable speech Monks turned short upon the matron and bent his gaze upon her, till even she, who was not easily cowed, was fain to withdraw her eyes and turn them towards the ground. "'This is the woman, is it?' demanded Monks. "'Ahem, that is the woman,' replied Mr. Bumble mindful of his wife's caution. "'You think women can never keep secrets, I suppose?' said the matron, interposing, and returning as she spoke the searching look of monks. 
"'I know they will always keep one till it's found out,' said Monks. "'And what may that be?' asked the matron. "'The loss of their own good name,' replied Monks. "'So, by the same rule, if a woman's a party to a secret that might hang or transport her, I'm not afraid of her telling it to anybody, not I. Do you understand, mistress?' "'No,' rejoined the matron, slightly colouring as she spoke. "'Of course you don't,' said Monks. "'How should you?' Bestowing something halfway between a smile and a frown upon his two companions, and again beckoning them to follow, the man hastened across the apartment, which was of considerable extent, but low in the roof. He was preparing to ascend a steep staircase, or rather ladder, a leading to another floor of warehouses above, when a bright flash of lightning streamed down the aperture, and a peal of thunder followed which shook the crazy building to its centre. "'Hear it!' he cried, shrinking back. "'Hear it, rolling and crashing on as if it echoed through a thousand caverns where the devils were hiding from it. I hate the sound!' He remained silent for a few moments, and then, removing his hand suddenly from his face, showed to the unspeakable discomposure of Mr. Bumble that it was much distorted and discoloured. "'These fits come over me now and then,' said Monks, observing his alarm. "'And thunder sometimes brings them on. Don't mind me now. It's all over for this once.' Thus speaking, he led the way up the ladder, and hastily closing the window-shutter of the room into which it led, lowered a lantern which hung at the end of a rope and pulley passed through one of the heavy beams in the ceiling, and which cast a dim light upon an old table and three chairs that were placed beneath it. "'Now,' said Monks, when they had all three seated themselves, "'the sooner we come to our business the better for all. The woman knows what it is, does she?' This question was addressed to Bumble, but his wife anticipated the reply by intimating that she was perfectly acquainted with it. "'He is right in saying that you were with his hag the night she died, and that she told you something.' "'About the mother of the boy you named,' replied the matron, interrupting him. "'Yes.' "'The first question is, of what nature was a communication?' said Monks. "'That's the second, observed the woman with much deliberation. "'The first is, what may the communication be worth?' "'Who the devil can tell that, without knowing what kind it is?' asked Monks. "'Nobody better than you, I am persuaded,' answered Mrs. Bumble, who did not want for spirit, as her yoke-fellow could abundantly testify. Uh, said Monk significantly, and with a look of eager inquiry. There may be money's worth to get, eh? Perhaps there may, was the composed reply. Something that was taken from her, said Monks. Something that she wore. Something that— You had better bid, interrupted Mrs. Bumble. I have heard enough already to assure me that you are the man I ought to talk to. Mr. Bumble, who had not yet been admitted by his better half into any greater share of the secret than he had originally possessed, listened to this dialogue with outstretched neck and distended eyes, which he directed towards his wife and monks by turns, in undisguised astonishment, increased if possible when the latter sternly demanded what sum was required for the disclosure. "'What's it worth to you?' asked the woman, as collectedly as before. "'It may be nothing. It may be twenty pounds,' replied Monks. "'Speak out and let me know which.' "'Add five pounds to the sum you have named. Give me five and twenty pounds in gold,' said the woman, "'and I'll tell you all I know. Not before.' Five and twenty pounds!' exclaimed Monks, drawing back. "'I spoke as plainly as I could,' replied Mrs. Bumble. "'It's not a large sum, either.' "'Not a large sum for a paltry secret that may be nothing when it's told.' cried Monks impatiently, and which has been lying dead for twelve years past or more. "'Such matters keep well, and like good wine often double their value in course of time,' 
answered the matron, still preserving the resolute indifference she had assumed. "'As to lying dead, there are those who will lie dead for twelve thousand years to come, or twelve million, for anything you or I know, who will tell strange tales at last.' "'What have I paid for nothing?' asked Monks, hesitating. "'You can easily take it away again,' replied the matron. "'I am but a woman, alone here and unprotected.' "'Not alone, my dear, nor unprotected, neither.' submitted Mr. Bumble, in a voice tremulous with fear. "'I am here, my dear. And besides,' said Mr. Bumble, his teeth chattering as he spoke, uh, "'Mr. Monks is too much of a gentleman to attempt any violence of parochial persons. Uh, Mr. Monks is aware that I am not a young man, my dear, and also that I am a little run to seed, as I may say. But he has heard—I say, I have no doubt Mr. Monks has heard, my dear—that I am a very determined officer, with very uncommon strength, if I am once roused.' I only want a little rousing, that's all." As Mr. Bumble spoke, he made a melancholy feint of grasping his lantern with fierce determination, and plainly showed by the alarmed expression of every feature that he did want a little rousing, and not a little, prior to making any very warlike demonstration, unless indeed against paupers or other person or persons trained down for the purpose. "'You are a fool,' said Mrs. Bumble in reply, and I'd better hold your tongue. "'He had better have it cut out before he came, if he can't speak in a lower tone,' said Monks grimly. "'So, he's your husband, eh?' "'He? My husband?' tittered the matron, parrying the question. "'I thought as much when you came in,' rejoined Monks, remarking the angry glance which the lady darted at her spouse as she spoke. "'So much the better. I have less hesitation in dealing with two people when I find there's only one will between them. I'm in earnest. See here.' He thrust his hand into a side-pocket, and producing a canvas bag, told out twenty-five sovereigns on the table, and pushed them over to the woman. "'Now,' he said, "'gather them up, and when this cursed peal of thunder which I feel is coming up to break over the housetop is gone, let's hear your story.' The thunder, which seemed in fact much nearer, and to shiver and break almost over their heads, having subsided, Monks raising his face from the table bent forward to listen to what the woman should say. The faces of the three nearly touched, as the two men leant over the small table in their eagerness to hear, and the woman also leant forward to render her whisper audible. The sickly rays of the suspended lantern falling directly upon them aggravated the paleness and anxiety of their countenances, which, encircled by the deepest gloom and darkness, looked ghastly in the extreme. "'When this woman that we called old Sally died,' the matron began, "'she and I were alone.' "'Was there no one, boy?' asked Monks, in the same hollow whisper. "'No sick wretch or idiot in some other bed. No one who could hear and might by possibility understand.' "'Not a soul,' replied the woman. "'We were alone. I stood alone beside the body when death came over it.' "'Good,' said Monks, regarding her attentively. "'Go on.' "'She spoke of a young creature,' resumed the matron, "'who had brought a child into the world some years before.' not merely in the same room, but in the same bed in which she then lay dying. Ay, said Monks, with quivering lip and glancing over his shoulder, blood, how things come about. The child was the one you named to him last night, said the matron, nodding carelessly towards her husband. The mother this nurse had robbed. In life, asked Monks. In death, replied the woman, with something like a shudder. She stole from the corpse when it had hardly turned to one that which the dead mother had prayed her with her last breath to keep for the infant's sake. "'She sold it!' cried Monks, with desperate eagerness. "'Did she sell it?' "'Where? 
when to whom how long before as she told me with great difficulty that she had done this said the matron she fell back and died without saying more cried monks in a voice which from its very suppression seemed only the more furious it's a lie i'll not be played with she said more i'll tear the life of both of you but i'll know what it was she didn't utter another word said the woman to all appearance unmoved as mr bumble was very far from being by the strange man's violence but she clutched my gown violently with one hand which was partly closed and when i saw that she was dead and so removed the hand by force i found it clasped a scrap of dirty paper which contained interposed the monk stretching forward nothing replied the woman it was a pawnbroker's duplicate for what demanded monks in good time i'll tell you said the woman i judged that she had kept the trinket for some time in the hope of turning it to better account and then had pawned it and had saved or scraped together money to pay the pawnbroker's interest year by year and prevent its running out so that if anything came of it it could still be redeemed nothing had come of it and as i tell you she died with a scrap of paper all worn and tattered in her hand the time was out in two days i thought something might one day come of it too and so redeemed the pledge where is it now asked monks quickly there replied the woman and as if to be relieved of it she hastily threw upon the table a small kid bag scarcely large enough for a french watch which monks pouncing upon tore open with trembling hands it contained a little gold locket in which were two locks of hair and a plain gold wedding ring it has the word agnes engraved on the inside said the woman there is a blank left for the surname and then follows the date which is within a year before the child was born i found that out and this is all said monks after close and eager scrutiny of the contents of the little packet all replied the woman mr bumble drew a long breath as if he were glad to find that the story was over and no mention made of taking the five-and-twenty pounds back again and now he took courage to wipe the perspiration which had been trickling over his nose unchecked during the whole of the previous dialogue i know nothing of the story beyond what i can guess at said his wife addressing monks after a short silence and i want to know nothing for it's safer not but i may ask you two questions may i you may ask said monks with some show of surprise but whether i answer or not is another question which makes three observed mr bumble essaying a stroke of facetiousness is that what you expected to get from me demanded the matron it is replied monks the other question what do you propose to do with it can it be used against me never rejoined monks nor against me either see here but don't move a step forward or your life's not worth a bulrush with these words he suddenly wheeled the table aside and pulling an iron ring in the boarding threw back a large trap-door which opened close at mr bumble's feet and caused that gentleman to retire several paces backward with great precipitation look down said monks lowering the lantern into the gulf don't fear me i could have let you down quietly enough when you were seated over it if that had been my game thus encouraged the matron drew near to the brink and even mr bumble himself impelled by curiosity ventured to do the same the turbid water swollen by the heavy rain was rushing rapidly on below and all other sounds were lost in the noise of its plashing and eddying against the green and slimy piles there had once been a water-mill beneath the tide foaming and chafing round the few rotten stakes and fragments of machinery that yet remained seemed to dart onward with a new impulse when freed from the obstacles which had unavailingly attempted to stem its headlong course 
"'If you flung a man's body down there, where would it be to-morrow morning?' said Monks, swinging the lantern to and fro in the dark well. Twelve miles down the river, and cut to pieces besides,' replied Bumble, recoiling at the thought. Monks drew the little packet from his breast where he had hurriedly thrust it, and tying it to a leaden weight, which had formed a part of some pulley and was lying on the floor, dropped it into the stream. It fell straight and true as a die, clove the water with a scarcely audible splash, and was gone. The three, looking into each other's faces, seemed to breathe more freely. There, said Monks, closing the trap-door, which fell heavily back into its former position. If the sea ever gives up its dead, as books say it will, it will keep its gold and silver to itself, and that trash among it. We have nothing more to say, and may break up our pleasant party. By all means, observed Mr. Bumble, with great alacrity. You keep a quiet tongue in your head, will you? said Monks, with a threatening look. I am not afraid of your wife. You may depend upon me, young man, answered Mr. Bumble, bowing himself gradually towards the ladder with excessive politeness. Not everybody's account, young man, nor my own account, you know, Mr. Monks. I am glad for your sake to hear it, remarked Monks. Light your lantern and get away from here as fast as you can. It was fortunate that the conversation terminated at this point, or Mr. Bumble, who had bowed himself to within six inches of the ladder, would infallibly have pitched headlong into the room below. He lighted his lantern from that which Monks had detached from the rope and now carried in his hand, and making no effort to prolong the discourse, descended in silence, followed by his wife. Monks brought up the rear after pausing on the steps to satisfy himself that there were no other sounds to be heard than the beating of the rain without and the rushing of the water. They traversed the lower room slowly and with caution, for Monks started at every shadow, and Mr. Bumble, holding his lantern a foot above the ground, walked not only with remarkable care, but with a marvellously light step for a gentleman of his figure, looking nervously about him for hidden trap-doors. The gate at which they had entered was softly unfastened and opened by Monks. Merely exchanging a nod with their mysterious acquaintance, the married couple emerged into the wet and darkness outside. They were no sooner gone than monks, who appeared to entertain an invincible repugnance to being left alone, called to a boy who had been hidden somewhere below. Bidding him to go first and bear the light, he returned to the chamber he had just quitted. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Introduces some respectable characters with whom the reader is already acquainted and shows how monks and the Jew laid their worthy heads together. On the evening following that upon which the three worthies mentioned in the last chapter disposed of their little matter of business as therein narrated, Mr. William Sykes, awakening from a nap, drowsily growled forth an inquiry what time of night it was. The room in which Mr. Sykes propounded this question was not one of those he had tenanted previous to the Chertsey expedition, although it was in the same quarter of the town and was situated at no great distance from his former lodgings. It was not in appearance so desirable a habitation as his old quarters, being a mean and badly furnished apartment of very limited size, lighted only by one small window in the shelving roof and abutting on a close and dirty lane. Nor were there wanting other indications of the good gentleman's having gone down in the world of late for a great scarcity of furniture and total absence of comfort, together with the disappearance of all such small movables as spare clothes and linen, bespoke a state of extreme poverty, while the meagre and attenuated condition of Mr. Sykes himself 
would have fully confirmed these symptoms if they had stood in any need of corroboration. The housebreaker was lying on the bed, wrapped in his white greatcoat by way of dressing-gown, and displaying a set of features in no degree improved by the cadaverous hue of illness, and the addition of a soiled nightcap and a stiff black beard of a week's growth. The dog sat at the bedside, now eyeing his master with a wistful look, and now pricking his ears and uttering a low growl as some noise in the street, or in the lower part of the house, attracted his attention. Seated by the window, busily engaged in patching an old waistcoat which formed a portion of the robber's ordinary dress, was a female, so pale and reduced with watching and privation, that there would have been considerable difficulty in recognising her as the same Nancy who has already figured in this tale, but for the voice in which she replied to Mr. Sykes's question. "'Not long gone seven, said the girl. "'How do you feel to-night, Bill?' "'As weak as water.' replied Mr. Sykes, with an imprecation on his eyes and limbs. "'Here, lend us a hand and get me off this thundering bed anyhow.' Illness had not improved Mr. Sykes's temper, for as the girl raised him up and led him to a chair, he muttered various curses on her awkwardness and struck her. "'Whining, are you?' said Sykes. "'Come, don't stand snivelling there. If you can't do anything better than that, cut off altogether, do you hear me?' "'I hear you.' replied the girl, turning her face aside and forcing a laugh. "'What fancy have you got into your head now?' "'Ah, oh, you've thought better of it, have you?' growled Sykes, marking the tear which trembled in her eye. "'All oh, the better for you, you have.' "'Why, you don't mean to say you'd be hard upon me to-night, Bill?' said the girl, laying her hand upon his shoulder. "'No,' cried Mr. Sykes. "'Why not?' "'Such a number of nights,' said the girl, with a touch of woman's tenderness which communicated something like sweetness of tone even to her voice. Such a number of nights as I've been patient with you, nursing and caring for you, as if you had been a child, and this is the first that I've seen you like yourself. You wouldn't have served me as you did just now if you thought of that, would you? Come, come, say you wouldn't. Well, then, rejoined Mr. Sykes, I wouldn't. Why, damn, now the girl's whining again. "'It's nothing,' said the girl, throwing herself into a chair. "'Don't you seem to mind me. It'll soon be over.' "'What'll be over?' demanded Sykes in a savage voice. "'What foolery are you up to now again? Get up and bustle about, and don't come over me with your woman's nonsense.' At any other time this remonstrance and the tone in which it was delivered would have had the desired effect, but the girl, being really weak and exhausted, dropped her head over the back of the chair and fainted before Mr. Sykes could get out a few of the appropriate oaths with which, on similar occasions, he was accustomed to garnish his threats. Not knowing very well what to do in this uncommon emergency, for Miss Nancy's hysterics were usually of that violent kind which the patient fights and struggles out of without much assistance, Mr. Sykes tried a little blasphemy, and finding that mode of treatment wholly ineffectual, called for assistance. "'What's the matter here, my dear?' said Fagin, looking in. "'Lend hand with the girl, can't you?' said Sykes impatiently. "'Don't stand chattering and grinning at me.' With an exclamation of surprise Fagin hastened to the girl's assistance, while Mr. John Dawkins, otherwise the artful dodger, who had followed his venerable friend into the room, hastily deposited on the floor a bundle with which he was laden, and snatching a bottle from the grasp of Master Charlie Bates who came close at his heels, uncorked it in a twinkling with his teeth, and poured a portion of its contents down the patient's throat previously taking a taste himself to prevent mistakes. "'Give her a whiff of fresh air with the bellows, Charlie,' said Mr. Dawkins, "'and slap her hands, Fagin, while Bill and us are petticuts.' 
These united restoratives, administered with great energy, especially that department consigned to Master Bates, who appeared to consider his share in the proceedings a piece of unexampled pleasantry, were not long in producing the desired effect. The girl gradually recovered her senses, and, staggering to a chair by the bedside, hid her face upon the pillow, leaving Mr. Sykes to confront the newcomers in some astonishment at their unlooked-for appearance. "'Why, what evil wind has blowed you here?' he asked Fagin. "'No evil wind at all, my dear, for evil winds blow nobody any good, and I've brought something good with me that you'll be glad to see. Don't you, my dear, open the bundle, and give Bill the little trifles that we spent all our money on this morning.' In compliance with Mr. Fagin's request, the artful untied his bundle, which was of large size and formed of an old tablecloth, and handed the articles it contained one by one to Charlie Bates, who placed them on the table with various encomiums on their rarity and excellence. "'Sit your rapid pie, Bill!' exclaimed that young gentleman, disclosing to view a huge pasty. "'Such delicate creatures, with such tender limbs, Bill, that the very bones melt in your mouth, and there's no occasion to pick em. Half a pound of seven and sixpenny green, so precious strong that if you mix it with boiling water, it'll go nigh to blow the lid of the teapot off. A pound and a half of moist sugar that the niggers didn't work at all at afore they got it up to sit a pitch of goodness. Oh no! Two half quartern brands, pound of best fresh, piece of double Gloucester, and to wind it all up, some of the richest sort you ever lushed. Uttering this last panegyric. Master Bates produced from one of his extensive pockets a full-sized wine-bottle, carefully corked, while Mr. Dawkins, at the same instant, poured out a wine-glassful of raw spirits from the bottle he carried, which the invalid tossed down his throat without a moment's hesitation. "'Ah!' said Fagin, rubbing his hands with great satisfaction. "'You'll do, Bill. You'll do now.' "'Do!' exclaimed Mr. Sykes. I might have been done for twenty times over afore you'd have done anything to help me. What do you mean by leaving a man in this state three weeks or more, you false-hearted wagabond? Only hear him, boys, said Fagin, shrugging his shoulders, and us come to bring him all these beautiful things. The things is well enough in their way, observed Mr. Sykes, a little soothed as he glanced over the table. But what have you got to say for yourself? Why should you leave me here, down in the mouth, health, blunt, and everything else? and take no more notice of me all this mortal time than if I was that ere dog. Drive him down, Charlie.' "'I never see such a jolly dog as that,' cried Master Bates, doing as he was desired. "'Smelling the grub like an old lady going to market. He'd make his fortune on the stage, that dog would, and revive the drama besides.' "'Hold your din!' cried Sykes, as the dog retreated under the bed, still growling angrily. "'What have you got to say for yourself, you withered old fence, eh?' "'I was away from London a week or more, my dear, on a plant,' replied the Jew. "'And what about the other fortnight?' demanded Sykes. "'What about the other fortnight you have left me lying here like a sick rat in his owl?' "'I couldn't help it, Bill. I can't go into a long explanation before company, but I couldn't help it upon my honour. "'Upon your what?' growled Sykes with excessive disgust. "'Here, cut me off a piece of that pie, one of you boys.' to take the taste of that out of my mouth, or it'll choke me dead. "'Don't be out of temper, my dear,' urged Fagin submissively. "'I have never forgot you, Bill. Never once.' "'Ah, I'll pound that you aren't,' replied Sykes, with a bitter grin. "'You've been scheming and plotting away every hour that I've laid shivering and burning here. 
and bill was to do this and bill was to do that and bill was to do it all dirt cheap as soon as he got well and was quite poor enough for your work if it hadn't been for the girl i might have died there now bill remonstrated fagin eagerly catching at the word if it hadn't been for the girl oh but poor old fagin was the means of your having such a handy girl about you he says true enough there said nancy coming hastily forward let him be let him be nancy's appearance gave a new turn to the conversation for the boys receiving a sly wink from the wary old jew began to ply her with liquor of which however she took very sparingly while fagin assuming an unusual flow of spirits gradually brought mr sykes into a better temper by affecting to regard his threats as a little pleasant banter and moreover by laughing very heartily at one or two rough jokes which after repeated applications of the spirit-bottle he condescended to make it's all very well said mr sykes but i must have some blunt from you to-night i haven't a piece of coin about me replied the jew then you've got lots at home retorted sykes and i must have some from there lots cried fagin holding up his hands i haven't so much as would i don't know how much you've got and i dare say you hardly know yourself as it would take a pretty long time to count it said sykes but i must have some to-night and that's flat well well said fagin with a sigh i'll send the artful round presently you won't do nothing of the kind rejoined mr sykes the artful's a deal too artful and will forget to come or lose his way or get dodged by the traps and so be perwented or anything for an excuse if you put it up to him nancy shall go to the ken and fetch it to make all sure and i'll lie down and have a snooze while she's gone after a great deal of haggling and squabbling fagin beat down the amount of the required advance from five pounds to three pounds four and sixpence protesting with many solemn asseverations that that would leave him only eighteen pence to keep house with mr sykes sullenly remarking that if he couldn't get any more he must be content with that nancy prepared to accompany him home while the dodger and master bates put the eatables in the cupboard the jew then taking leave of his affectionate friend returned homeward attended by nancy and the boys mr sykes meanwhile flinging himself on the bed and composing himself to sleep away the time until the young lady's return in due course they arrived at fagin's abode where they found toby crackett and mr chitling intent upon their fifteenth game at cribbage which it is scarcely necessary to say the latter gentleman lost and with it his fifteenth and last sixpence much to the amusement of his young friends mr crackett apparently somewhat ashamed at being found relaxing himself with a gentleman so much his inferior in station and mental endowments yawned and inquiring after sykes took up his hat to go has nobody been toby asked fagin not a living leg answered mr crackett pulling up his collar it's been as dull as swipes you ought to stand something handsome fagin to recompense me for keeping house so long damn i'm as flat as a juryman and should have gone to sleep as fast as newgate if i hadn't had the good nature to amuse this youngster horrid dull i'm blessed if i ain't with these and other ejaculations of the same kind mr toby crackett swept up his winnings and crammed them into his waistcoat pocket with a haughty air as though such small pieces of silver were wholly beneath the consideration of a man of his figure this done he swaggered out of the room with so much elegance and gentility that mr chitling bestowing numerous admiring glances on his legs and boots till they were out of sight assured the company that he considered his acquaintance cheap at fifteen sixpences an interview and that he didn't value his losses the snap of his little finger 
"'What a rum chap you are, Tom,' said Master Bates, highly amused by this declaration. "'Not a bit of it,' replied Mr. Chitling. "'Am I, Fagin?' "'A very clever fellow, my dear,' said Fagin, patting him on the shoulder and winking to his other pupils. "'And Mr. Crackett is a heavy swell, ain't he, Fagin?' asked Tom. "'No doubt at all of that, my dear.' "'And it is a creditable thing to have his acquaintance, ain't it, Fagin?' pursued Tom. "'Very much so, indeed, my dear. They're only jealous, Tom, because he won't give it to them.' "'Ah!' cried Tom triumphantly. "'That's where it is. He has cleaned me out, but I can go and earn some more when I like, can't I, Fagin?' "'To be sure you can, and the sooner you go the better, Tom. So make up your losses at once and don't lose any more time. Don't you, Charlie?' It's time you're on the lay. Come, it's nearly ten and nothing done yet." In obedience to this hint, the boys, nodding to Nancy, took up their hats and left the room, the Dodger and his vivacious friend indulging as they went in many witticisms at the expense of Mr. Chitling, in whose conduct, it is but justice to say, there was nothing very conspicuous or peculiar, inasmuch as there are a great number of spirited young bloods upon town who pay much higher price than Mr. Chitling for being seen in good society and a great number of fine gentlemen composing the good society aforesaid who established their reputation upon very much the same footing as flash toby crackett now said fagin when they had left the room i'll go and get you that cash nancy this is only the key of a little cupboard where i keep a few odd things the boys get my dear i never lock up my money for i've none to lock up my dear <laughs> none to lock up it's a poor trade nancy and no thanks but I'm fond of seeing the young people about me, and I bear it all. I bear it all. Hush, he said hastily, concealing the key in his breast. Who's that? Listen. The girl who was sitting at the table with her arms folded appeared in no way interested in the arrival, or to care whether the person, whoever it was, came or went, until the murmur of a man's voice reached her ears. The instant she caught the sound she tore off her bonnet and shawl, with the rapidity of lightning, and thrust them under the table. The Jew turning round immediately afterwards, she muttered a complaint of the heat, in a tone of languor that contrasted very remarkably with the extreme haste and violence of this action, which, however, had been unobserved by Fagin, who had his back towards her at the time. "'Ah!' he whispered, as though nettled by the interruption. "'It's the man I expected before. He's coming downstairs.' Not a word about the money while he's here, Nance. He won't stop long. Not ten minutes, my dear." Laying his skinny forefinger upon his lip, the Jew carried a candle to the door, as a man's step was heard on the stairs without. He reached it at the same moment as the visitor, who, coming hastily into the room, was close upon the girl before he observed her. It was Monks. "'Only one of my young people,' said Fagin, observing that Monks drew back on beholding a stranger. "'Don't move, Nancy.' The girl drew closer to the table, and glancing at Monks with an air of careless levity withdrew her eyes, but as he turned towards Fagin she stole another look, so keen and searching and full of purpose that if there had been any bystander to observe the change he could hardly have believed the two looks to have proceeded from the same person. "'Any news?' inquired Fagin. "'Great.' "'And—and good,' said Fagin, hesitating, as though he feared to vex the other man by being too sanguine. "'Not bad, anyway,' replied Monks, with a smile. "'I have been prompt enough this time. Let me have a word with you.' 
The girl drew closer to the table and made no offer to leave the room, although she could see that Monks was pointing to her. The Jew, perhaps fearing she might say something aloud about the money if he endeavoured to get rid of her, pointed upward and took Monks out of the room. "'Not that infernal hole we were in before,' she could hear the man say as they went upstairs. Fagin laughed, and making some reply which did not reach her, seemed by the creaking of the boards to lead his companion to the second story. Before the sound of their footsteps had ceased to echo through the house, the girl had slipped off her shoes, and drawing her gown loosely over her head, and muffling her arms in it, stood at the door listening with breathless interest. The moment the noise ceased, she glided from the room, ascended the stairs with incredible softness and silence, and was lost in the gloom above. The room remained deserted for a quarter of an hour or more. The girl glided back with the same unearthly tread, and immediately afterwards the two men were heard descending. Monks went at once into the street, and the Jew crawled upstairs again for the money. When he returned, the girl was adjusting her shawl and bonnet, as if preparing to be gone. "'Why, Nance!' exclaimed the Jew, starting back as he put down the candle. "'How pale you are!' "'Pale?' echoed the girl, shading her eyes with her hands, as if to look steadily at him. "'Quite horrible! What have you been doing to yourself?' "'Nothing that I know of, except sitting in this close place for I don't know how long and all,' replied the girl carelessly. "'Come, let me get back, that's a dear.' With a sigh for every piece of money Fagin told the amount into her hand. They parted without more conversation, merely interchanging a good-night. When the girl got into the open street she sat down upon a doorstep, and seemed, for a few moments, wholly bewildered and unable to pursue her way. She suddenly arose, and hurrying on in a direction quite opposite to that in which Sykes was awaiting her return, quickened her pace until it gradually resolved into a violent run. After completely exhausting herself she stopped to take breath, and as if suddenly recollecting herself, and deploring her inability to do something she was bent on, wrung her hands and burst into tears. It might be that her tears relieved her, or that she felt the full hopelessness of her condition, but she turned back, and hurrying with nearly as great rapidity in the contrary direction, partly to recover lost time and partly to keep pace with the violent current of her own thoughts, soon reached the dwelling where she had left the housebreaker. If she betrayed any agitation when she presented herself to Mr. Sykes, he did not observe it, for merely inquiring if she had brought the money, and receiving a reply in the affirmative, he uttered a growl of satisfaction, and placing his head upon the pillow, resumed the slumbers which her arrival had interrupted. It was fortunate for her that the possession of money occasioned him so much employment next day in the way of eating and drinking, and withal had so beneficial an effect in smoothing down the asperities of his temper that he had neither time nor inclination to be very critical upon her behaviour and deportment, that she had all the abstracted and nervous manner of one who was on the eve of some bold and hazardous step, which it has required no common struggle to resolve upon, would have been obvious to the lynx-eyed Fagin, who would most probably have taken the alarm at once. But Mr. Sykes, lacking the niceties of discrimination, and being troubled with no more subtle misgivings than those which resolve themselves into a dogged roughness of behaviour towards everybody, being furthermore in an unusually amiable condition, as has already been observed, saw nothing unusual in her demeanour, and indeed troubled himself so little about her that had her agitation been far more perceptible than it was, it would have been very unlikely to have awakened his suspicions. As that day closed in, the girl's excitement increased. 
and when night came on and she sat by watching until the housebreaker should drink himself asleep there was an unusual paleness in her cheek and a fire in her eye that even sykes observed with astonishment mr sykes being weak from the fever was lying in bed taking hot water with his gin to render it less inflammatory and had pushed his glass towards nancy to be replenished for the third or fourth time when these symptoms first struck him why burn my body said the man raising himself on his hands as he stared the girl in the face you look like a corpse come to life again what's the matter matter replied the girl nothing what do you look at me so hard for what foolery is this demanded sykes grasping her by the arm and shaking her roughly what is it what do you mean what are you thinking of of many things bill replied the girl shivering and as she did so pressing her hands upon her eyes but lord what odds is that the tone of forced gaiety in which the last words were spoken seemed to produce a deeper impression on sykes than the wild and rigid look which had preceded them i'll tell you what it is said sykes if you haven't caught the fever and got it coming on now there's something more than usual in the wind and something dangerous too you're not a-going to oh, damn you wouldn't do that do what asked the girl there ain't said sykes fixing his eyes upon her and muttering the words to himself there ain't a staunch-hearted gal goin or i'd have cut her throat three months ago she's got the fever coming on that's it fortifying himself with this assurance sykes drained the glass to the bottom and then with many grumbling oaths called for his physic the girl jumped up with great alacrity poured it quickly out but with her back towards him and held the vessel to his lips while he drank off the contents now said the robber come and sit aside of me and put on your own face or i'll alter it so that you won't know it again when you do want it the girl obeyed sykes locking her hand in his fell back upon the pillow turning his eyes upon her face they closed opened again closed once more again opened he shifted his position restlessly and after dozing again and again for two or three minutes and as often springing up with a look of terror and gazing vacantly about him was suddenly stricken as it were while in the very attitude of rising into a deep and heavy sleep the grasp of his hand relaxed the upraised arm fell languidly by his side and he lay like one in a profound trance the laudanum has taken effect at last murmured the girl as she rose from the bedside or may be too late even now she hastily dressed herself in her bonnet and shawl looking fearfully round from time to time as if despite the sleeping draught she expected every moment to feel the pressure of sykes's heavy hand upon her shoulder then stooping softly over the bed she kissed the robber's lips and then opening and closing the room door with a noiseless touch hurried from the house a watchman was crying half-past nine down a dark passage through which she had to pass in gaining the main thoroughfare is it long on the half-hour asked the girl it'll strike the hour in another quarter said the man raising his lantern to her face and i cannot get there in less than an hour or more muttered nancy brushing swiftly past him and gliding rapidly down the street many of the shops were already closing in the back lanes and avenues through which she tracked her way in making from spitalfields towards the west end of london the clock struck ten increasing her impatience she tore along the narrow pavement elbowing the passengers from side to side and darting almost under the horses heads crossing crowded streets where clusters of persons were eagerly watching their opportunity to do the like the woman is mad said the people turning to look after her as she rushed away 
When she reached the more wealthy quarter of the town the streets were comparatively deserted, and here her headlong progress excited a still greater curiosity in the stragglers whom she hurried past. Some quickened their pace behind, as though to see whither she was hastening at such an unusual rate, and a few made head upon her, and looked back, surprised at her undiminished speed. But they fell off one by one, and when she neared her place of destination she was alone. It was a family hotel in a quiet but handsome street near Hyde Park. As the brilliant light of the lamp which burnt before its door guided her to the spot, the clock struck eleven. She had loitered for a few paces as though irresolute, and making up her mind to advance, but the sound determined her, and she stepped into the hall. The porter's seat was vacant. She looked round with an air of incertitude, and advanced towards the stairs. "'Now, young woman,' said a smartly dressed female, looking out from a door behind her, "'what do you want here?' "'A lady who is stopping in this house,' answered the girl. "'A lady,' was the reply, accompanied with a scornful look. "'What lady?' "'Miss Miley,' said Nancy. The young woman, who had by this time noted her appearance, replied only by a look of virtuous disdain, and summoned a man to answer her. To him Nancy repeated her request. "'What name am I to say?' asked the waiter. "'It's of no use saying any,' replied Nancy. "'No business?' said the man. "'No, nor that neither,' rejoined the girl. "'I must see the lady.' "'Come,' said the man, pushing her towards the door. "'None of this. Take yourself off.' "'I shall be carried out if I go,' said the girl violently, "'and I can make that a job that two of you won't like to do. "'Isn't there anybody here,' she said, looking round, "'that will see a simple message carried for a poor wretch like me?' This appeal produced an effect on a good-tempered-faced man-cook, who, with some of the other servants, was looking on, and who stepped forward to interfere. "'Take it up for a joe, can't you?' said this person. "'What's the good?' replied the man. "'You don't suppose the young lady will see such as her, do you?' This allusion to Nancy's doubtful character raised a vast quantity of chaste wrath in the bosoms of four housemaids, who remarked with great fervour that the creature was a disgrace to her sex, and strongly advocated her being thrown ruthlessly into the kennel. "'Do what you like with me,' said the girl, turning to the men again. "'But do what I ask you first, and I ask you to give this message for God Almighty's sake.' The soft-hearted cook added his intercession, and the result was that the man who had first appeared undertook its delivery. "'What's it to be?' said the man with one foot on the stairs. "'That a young woman earnestly wants to speak to Miss Miley alone,' said Nancy, "'and that if the lady will only hear the first word she has to say, she will know whether to hear her business or to have her turned out of doors as an impostor.' "'I say,' said the man, "'you're coming it strong.' "'You give the message,' said the girl firmly, "'and let me hear the answer.' The man ran upstairs. Nancy remained, pale and almost breathless, listening with quivering lips to the very audible expressions of scorn, of which the chaste housemaids were very prolific, and of which they became still more so when the man returned and said the young woman was to walk upstairs. "'It's now good being proper in this world,' said the first housemaid. "'Brass can do better than the gold what stood the fire,' said the second. The third contented herself with wondering what ladies was made of and the fourth took the first in a quartet of shameful with which the dianas concluded regardless of all this for she had weightier matters at heart nancy followed the man with trembling limbs into a small antechamber lighted by a lamp from the ceiling here he left her and retired End of chapter thirty nine
Chapter forty of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. A strange interview, which is a sequel to the last chapter. The girl's life had been squandered in the streets and among the most noisome of the stews and dens of London, but there was something of the woman's original nature left in her still and when she heard a light step approaching the door opposite to that by which she had entered, and thought of the wide contrast which the small room would in another moment contain, she felt burdened with a sense of her own deep shame, and shrunk as though she could scarcely bear the presence of her with whom she had sought this interview. But struggling with these better feelings was pride, the vice of the lowest and most debased creatures no less than of the high and self-assured the miserable companion of thieves and ruffians, the fallen outcast of low haunts, the associate of the scourgings of the jails and hulks, living within the shadows of the gallows itself, even this degraded being felt too proud to betray a feeble gleam of the womanly feeling which she thought a weakness, but which alone connected her with that humanity of which her wasting life had obliterated so many, many traces when a very child. She raised her eyes sufficiently to observe that the figure which presented itself was that of a slight and beautiful girl. Then, bending them on the ground, she tossed her head with affected carelessness, as she said, "'It's a hard matter to get to see you, lady. If I had taken offence and gone away, as many would have done, you'd have been sorry for it one day, and not without reason either.' "'I am very sorry if anyone has behaved harshly to you,' replied Rose. "'Do not think of that. Tell me why you wish to see me. I am the person you inquired for." The kind tone of this answer, the sweet voice, the gentle manner, the absence of any accent of haughtiness or displeasure, took the girl completely by surprise, and she burst into tears. "'No, oh, lady, lady,' she said, clasping her hands passionately before her face, "'if there was more like you, there would be fewer like me. There would, there would!' "'Sit down,' said Rose earnestly. If you are in poverty or affliction, I shall be truly glad to relieve you if I can. I shall indeed. Sit down." "'Let me stand, lady,' said the girl, still weeping, "'and do not speak to me so kindly till you know me better. It is growing late. Is—is is that door shut?' "'Yes,' said Rose, recoiling a few steps, as if to be nearer assistance in case she should require it. "'Why?' "'Because,' said the girl, "'I am about to put my life and the lives of others in your hands. I am the girl that dragged little Oliver back to old Fagin's on the night you went out of the house in Pentonville." "'You?' said Rose Maylie. "'Aye, lady,' replied the girl. "'I am the infamous creature you have heard of that lives among the thieves, and that never from the first moment I can recollect my eyes and senses opening on the streets of London have known any better life, or kinder words than they have given me, so help me God. Do not mind shrinking openly for me, lady. I am younger than you would think to look at me, but I am well used to it. The poorest women fall back as I make my way along the crowded pavement." "'What dreadful things are these?' said Rose, involuntarily falling from her strange companion. "'Thank heaven upon your knees, dear lady,' cried the girl, "'that you had friends to care for and keep you in your childhood, and that you were never in the midst of cold and hunger and riot and drunkenness, and—and something worse than all, as I have been from my cradle. I may use the word, for the alley and the gutter were mine, as they will be my death-bed." "'I pity you,' said Rose, in a broken voice. "'It wrings my heart to hear you.' "'Heaven bless you for your goodness,' rejoined the girl. 
if you knew what i am sometimes you would pity me indeed but i have stolen away from those who would surely murder me if they knew i had been here to tell you what i have overheard do you know a man named monks no said rose he knows you replied the girl and knew you were here for it was by hearing him tell the place that i found you out i never heard the name said rose then he goes by some other amongst us rejoined the girl which i more than thought of before some time ago and soon after oliver was put into your house on the night of the robbery i suspecting this man listened to a conversation held between him and fagin in the dark i found out from what i heard that monks the man i asked you about you know yes said rose i understand that monks pursued the girl had seen him accidentally with two of our boys on the day we first lost him and had known him directly to be the same child that he was watching for though i couldn't make out why a bargain was struck with fagin that if oliver was got back he should have a certain sum and he was to have more for making him a thief which this monks wanted for some purpose of his own for what purpose asked rose he caught sight of my shadow on the wall as i listened in the hope of finding out said the girl and there are not many people besides me that could have got out of their way in time to escape discovery but i did and i saw no more till last night and what occurred then i'll tell you lady last night he came again again they went upstairs and i wrapping myself up so that my shadow would not betray me again listened at the door the first words i heard monks say were these so the only proofs of the boy's identity lie at the bottom of the river and the old hag that received them from the mother is rotting in her coffin they laughed and talked of a success in doing this and monks talking on about the boy and getting very wild said that though he had got the young devil's money safely now he'd rather have had it the other way for what a game it would have been to have brought down the boast of the father's will by driving him through every jail in town and then hauling him up for some capital felony which fagin could easily manage after having made a good profit of him besides what is all this said rose the truth lady though it comes from my lips replied the girl then he said with oaths common enough to my ears but strange to yours that if he could gratify his hatred by taking the boy's life without bringing his own neck in danger he would but as he couldn't he'd be upon the watch to meet him at every turn in life and if he took advantage of his birth and history he might arm him yet in short fagin he says jew as you are you never laid such snares as i'll contrive for my young brother oliver his brother exclaimed rose those were his words said nancy glancing uneasily round as she had scarcely ceased to do since she began to speak for a vision of sykes haunted her perpetually and more when he spoke of you and the other lady and said it seemed contrived by heaven or the devil against him that oliver should come into your hands he laughed and said that there was some comfort in that too for how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds would you not give if you had them to know who your two-legged spaniel was you do not mean said rose turning very pale to tell me that this was said in earnest he spoke in hard and angry earnest if a man ever did replied the girl shaking her head he is an earnest man when his hatred is up i know many who do worse things but i'd rather listen to them all a dozen times than to that monks once it is growing late and i have to reach home without suspicion of having been on such an errand as this i must get back quickly but what can i do said rose to what use can i turn this communication without you back why do you wish to return to the companions you paint in such terrible colours 
If you repeat this information to a gentleman whom I can summon in an instant from the next room, you can be consigned to some place of safety without half an hour's delay.' "'I wish to go back,' said the girl. "'I must go back because—how can I tell such things to an innocent lady like you? Because among the men I have told you of there is one, the most desperate among them all, that I can't leave. Now, not even to be saved from the life I am leading now.' "'You are having interfered in this dear boy's behalf before,' said Rose. "'You are coming here at so great a risk to tell me what you have heard, your manner which convinces me of the truth of what you say, your evident contrition and sense of shame, all lead me to believe that you might yet be reclaimed.' "'Oh,' said the earnest girl, folding her hands as the tears coursed down her face, "'do not turn a deaf ear to the entreaties of one of your own sex. The first, the first, I do believe, who ever appealed to you in the voice of pity and compassion.' Do hear my words, and let me save you yet for better things." "'Lady,' cried the girl, sinking on her knees, "'dear sweet angel lady, you are the first that ever blessed me with such words as these, and if I had heard them many years ago, they might have turned me from a life of sin and sorrow. But it is too late. It is too late.' "'It is never too late,' said Rose, "'for penitence and atonement.' "'It is,' cried the girl, writhing in the agony of her mind. I cannot leave him now. I could not be his death." "'Why should you be?' asked Rose. "'Nothing could save him,' cried the girl. "'If I told others what I have told you, and led to their being taken, he would be sure to die. He is the boldest, and has been so cruel.' "'Is it possible,' cried Rose, "'that for such a man as this you can resign every future hope, and the certainty of immediate rescue? It is madness.' "'I don't know what it is,' answered the girl. I only know that it is so, and not with me alone, but with hundreds of others as bad and wretched as myself. I must go back. Whether it is God's wrath for the wrong I have done, I do not know, but I am drawn back to him through every suffering and ill-usage, and I should be, I believe, if I knew I was going to die by his hand at last." "'What am I to do?' said Rose. "'I should not let you depart from me thus.' "'You should, lady, and I know you will,' rejoined the girl, rising. You will not stop my going because I have trusted in your goodness, and forced no promise from you, as I might have done." "'Of what use, then, is the communication you have made?' said Rose. "'This mystery must be investigated. Or how will its disclosure to me benefit Oliver, whom you are anxious to serve?' "'You must have some kind gentleman about that will hear it as a secret, and advise you what to do,' rejoined the girl. "'But where can I find you again when it is necessary?' asked Rose. I do not seek to know where these dreadful people live, but where will you be walking or passing at any settled period from this time? Will you promise me that you will have my secret strictly kept, and come alone, or with the only other person that knows it? And that I shall not be watched or followed?" asked the girl. I promise you solemnly," answered Rose. Every Sunday night, from eleven till the clock strikes twelve, said the girl without hesitation, I will walk on London Bridge if I am alive. "'Stay another moment,' interposed Rose, as the girl moved hurriedly towards the door. "'Think once again on your own condition, and the opportunity you have of escaping from it. You have a claim on me, not only as the voluntary bearer of this intelligence, but as a woman lost almost beyond redemption. Will you return to this gang of robbers and to this man, when a word can save you? What fascination is it that can take you back, and make you cling to wickedness and misery?' Oh, is there no cord in your heart that I can touch? Is there nothing left to which I can appeal against this terrible infatuation?" "'When ladies as young and good and beautiful as you are,' replied the girl steadily, "'give away your arts, 
love will carry you all lengths even such as you who have home friends other admirers everything to fill them when such as i who have no certain roof but a coffin lid and no friends in sickness or death but the hospital nurse set our rotten hearts on any man and let him fill the place that has been blank through all our wretched lives who can hope to cure us piteous lady piteous for having only one feeling of the woman left and for having that turned by heavy judgment from a comfort and a pride into a new means of violence and suffering you will said rose after a pause take some money from me which may enable you to live without dishonesty at all events until we meet again not a penny replied the girl waving her hand do not close your heart against all my efforts to help you said rose stepping gently forward i wish to serve you indeed you would serve me best lady replied the girl wringing her hands if you could take my life at once for i felt more grief to think of what i am to-night than i ever did before and it would be something not to die in the hell in which i have lived god bless you sweet lady and send as much happiness on your head as i have brought shame on mine thus speaking and sobbing aloud the unhappy creature turned away while rose maylie overpowered by this extraordinary interview which had more the semblance of a rapid dream than an actual occurrence sank into a chair and endeavoured to collect her wandering thoughts End of chapter forty chapter forty one of oliver twist by charles dickens containing fresh discoveries and showing that surprises like misfortunes seldom come alone her situation was indeed one of no common trial and difficulty while she felt the most eager and burning desire to penetrate the mystery in which oliver's history was enveloped she could not but hold sacred the confidence which the miserable woman with whom she had just conversed had reposed in her as a young and guileless girl her words and manner had touched rose maylie's heart and mingled with her love for her young charge and scarcely less intense in its truth and fervour was her fond wish to win the outcast back to repentance and hope they proposed remaining in london only three days prior to departing for some weeks to a distant part of the coast it was now midnight of the first day what course of action could she determine upon which could be adopted in eight and forty hours or how could she postpone the journey without exciting suspicion mr losborne was with them and would be for the next two days but rose was too well acquainted with the excellent gentleman's impetuosity and foresaw too clearly the wrath with which in the first explosion of his indignation he would regard the instrument of oliver's recapture to trust him with the secret when her representations on the girl's behalf could be seconded by no experienced person these were all reasons for the greatest caution and the most circumspect behaviour in communicating it to mrs maylie whose first impulse would infallibly be to hold a conference with the worthy doctor on the subject as to resorting to any legal adviser even if she had known how to do so it was scarcely to be thought of for the same reason once the thought occurred to her of seeking assistance from harry but this awakened the recollection of their last parting and it seemed unworthy of her to call him back when the tears rose to her eyes as she pursued this train of reflection he might have by this time learnt to forget her and to be happier away disturbed by these different reflections inclining now to one course and then to another and again recoiling from all as each successive consideration presented itself to her mind rose passed a sleepless and anxious night after more communing with herself next day she arrived at the desperate conclusion of consulting harry if it be painful to him she thought 
to come back here. How painful it will be to me! But perhaps he will not come. He may write or he may come himself and studiously abstain from meeting me. He did when he went away. I hardly thought he would, but it was better for us both. And here Rose dropped the pen and turned away, as though the very paper which was to be her messenger should not see her weep. She had taken up the same pen and laid it down again fifty times, and had considered and reconsidered the first line of her letter without writing the first word, when Oliver, who had been walking in the streets with Mr. Giles for a bodyguard, entered the room in such breathless haste and violent agitation as seemed to betoken some new cause of alarm. "'What makes you look so flurried?' asked Rose, advancing to meet him. "'I hardly know how. I feel as if I should be choked.' replied the boy. Oh, dear, to think that I should see him at last, and you should be able to know that I have told you the truth. I never thought you had told us anything but the truth, said Rose, soothing him. But what is this? Of whom do you speak? I have seen the gentleman, replied Oliver, scarcely able to articulate, the gentleman who was so good to me, Mr. Brownlow, that we have so often talked about. Where? asked Rose. "'Getting out of a coach,' replied Oliver, shedding tears of delight, "'and going into a house. I didn't speak to him, I couldn't speak to him, for he didn't see me, and I trembled so that I was not able to go up to him. But Giles asked for me whether he lived there, and they said he did. Look here,' said Oliver, opening a scrap of paper, "'here it is, here is where he lives. I'm going there directly. Oh, dear me, dear me, what shall I do when I come to see him and hear him speak again?' With her attention not a little distracted by these and a great many other incoherent exclamations of joy, Rose read the address, which was Craven Street in the Strand. She very soon determined upon turning the discovery to account. "'Quick,' she said, "'tell them to fetch a hackney-coach and be ready to go with me. I will take you there directly without a minute's loss of time. I will only tell my aunt that we are going out for an hour and be ready as soon as you are.' Oliver needed no prompting to dispatch and in a little more than five minutes they were on the way to Craven Street. When they arrived there Rose left Oliver in the coach, under pretence of preparing the old gentleman to receive him, and sending up her card by the servant, requested to see Mr. Brownlow on very pressing business. The servant soon returned, to beg that she would walk upstairs, and following him into an upper room Miss Maylie was presented to an elderly gentleman of benevolent appearance, in a bottle-green coat at no great distance from whom was seated another gentleman in nankeen breeches and gaiters who did not look particularly benevolent and who was sitting with his hands clasped on the top of a thick stick with his chin propped thereupon dear me said the gentleman in the bottle-green coat hastily rising with great politeness i beg your pardon young lady i imagined it was some importunate person who i beg you will excuse me be seated pray mr brownlow i believe sir said Rose, glancing from the other gentleman to the one who had spoken. "'That is my name,' said the old gentleman. "'This is my friend, Mr. Grimwig. Grimwig, will you leave us for a few minutes?' "'I believe,' interposed Miss Maylie, "'that at this period of our interview I need not give that gentleman the trouble of going away. If I am correctly informed, he is cognizant of the business on which I wish to speak to you.' Mr. Brownlow inclined his head. Mr. Grimwig, who had made one very stiff bow and risen from his chair, made another very stiff bow, and dropped into it again. "'I shall surprise you very much, I have no doubt,' said Rose, naturally embarrassed. "'But you once showed great benevolence and goodness to a very dear young friend of mine, and I am sure you will take an interest in hearing of him again.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'Oliver Twist, as you knew him,' replied Rose. The words no sooner escaped her lips 
and Mr. Grimwig, who had been affecting to dip into a large book that lay on the table, upset it with a great crash, and falling back in his chair discharged from his features every expression but one of unmitigated wonder, and indulged in a prolonged and vacant stare. Then, as if ashamed of having betrayed so much emotion, he jerked himself, as it were, by a convulsion into his former attitude, and looking out straight before him emitted a long, deep whistle, which seemed at last not to be discharged on empty air, but to die away in the innermost recesses of his stomach. Mr. Brownlow was no less surprised, although his astonishment was not expressed in the same eccentric manner. He drew his chair nearer to Miss Maylie's and said, "'Do me the favour, my dear young lady, to leave entirely out of the question that goodness and benevolence of which you speak, and of which nobody else knows anything, and if you have it in your power to produce any evidence which will alter the unfavourable opinion I was once induced to entertain of that poor child, in heaven's name put me in possession of it.' "'That bad one! I'll eat my head if he's not a bad one!' growled Mr. Grimwig, speaking by some ventriloquial power without moving a muscle of his face. "'He is a child of a noble nature and a warm heart,' said Rose, colouring, "'and that power which has thought fit to try him beyond his years has planted in his breast affections and feelings which would do honour to many who have numbered his days six times over.' "'I'm only sixty-one, said Mr. Grimwig, with the same rigid face, "'and as the devil is in it if this Oliver is not twelve years old at least, I don't see the application of that remark.' "'Do not heed my friend, Miss Maylie,' said Mr. Brownlow. He does not mean what he says. "'Yes, he does,' growled Mr. Grimwig. "'No, he does not,' said Mr. Brownlow, obviously rising in wrath as he spoke. "'He'll eat his head if he doesn't,' growled Mr. Grimwig. "'He would deserve to have it knocked off if he does,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'And he'd uncommonly like to see any man offer to do it,' responded Mr. Grimwig, knocking his stick upon the floor. Having gone thus far, the two old gentlemen severally took snuff, and afterwards shook hands according to their invariable custom. "'Now, Miss Maylie,' said Mr. Brownlow, "'to return to the subject in which your humanity is so much interested, will you let me know what intelligence you have of this poor child, allowing me to promise that I exhausted every means in my power of discovering him, and that since I have been absent from this country, my first impression that he had imposed upon me, and had been persuaded by his former associates to rob me, has been considerably shaken." Rose, who had had time to collect her thoughts, at once related, in a few natural words, all that had befallen Oliver since he left Mr. Brownlow's house, reserving Nancy's information for that gentleman's private ear, and concluding with the assurance that his only sorrow for some months past had not been able to meet with his former benefactor and friend. "'Thank God!' said the old gentleman. This is great happiness to me, great happiness. But you have not told me where he is now, Miss Maylie. You must pardon my finding fault with you, but why have you not brought him?" "'He is waiting in the coach at the door,' replied Rose. "'At the door?' cried the old gentleman, with which he hurried out of the room, down the stairs, up the coach-steps, and into the coach, without another word. When the room-door closed behind him, Mr. Grimwig lifted up his head and converting one of the hind legs of his chair into a pivot, described three distinct circles with the assistance of his stick and the table, sitting in it all the time. After performing this evolution, he rose and limped as fast as he could up and down the room at least a dozen times, and then, stopping suddenly before Rose, kissed her without the slightest preface. "'Hush!' he said as the young lady rose in some alarm at this unusual proceeding. "'Don't be afraid. I'm old enough to be your grandfather.' You're a sweet girl. I like you. 
here they are in fact as he threw himself at one dexterous dive into his former seat mr brownlow returned accompanied by oliver whom mr grimwig received very graciously and if the gratification of that moment had been the only reward for all her anxiety and care in oliver's behalf rose maylie would have been well repaid there is somebody else who should not be forgotten by the by said mr brownlow ringing the bell send mrs bedwin here if you please the old housekeeper answered the summons with all dispatch and dropping a curtsey at the door waited for orders why you get blinder every day bedwin said mr brownlow rather testily well that i do sir replied the old lady people's eyes at my time of life don't improve with age sir i could have told you that rejoined mr brownlow but put on your glasses and see if you can't find out what you are wanted for will you the old lady began to rummage in her pocket for her spectacles but oliver's patience was not proof against this new trial and yielding to his first impulse he sprang into her arms god be good to me cried the old lady embracing him it is my innocent boy my dear old nurse cried oliver he would come back i knew he would said the old lady holding him in her arms how well he looks and how like a gentleman's son he is dressed again where have you been this long long while ah the same sweet face but not so pale the same soft eye but not so sad i have never forgotten them or his quiet smile but have seen them every day side by side with those of my own dear children dead and gone since i was a lightsome young creature running on thus and now holding oliver from her to mark how he had grown now clasping him to her and passing her fingers fondly through his hair the good soul laughed and wept upon his neck by turns leaving her and oliver to compare notes at leisure mr brownlow led the way into another room and there he heard from rose a full narration of the interview with nancy which occasioned him no little surprise and perplexity rose also explained her reasons for not confiding in her friend mr losburn in the first instance the old gentleman considered that she had acted prudently and readily undertook to hold solemn conference with a worthy doctor himself to afford him an early opportunity for the execution of this design it was arranged that he should call at the hotel at eight o'clock that evening and that in the meantime mrs maylie should be cautiously informed of all that had occurred these preliminaries adjusted rose and oliver returned home rose had by no means overrated the measure of the good doctor's wrath nancy's history was no sooner unfolded to him than he poured forth a shower of mingled threats and execrations threatened to make her the first victim of the combined ingenuity of messrs blathers and duff and actually put on his hat preparatory to sallying forth to obtain the assistance of those worthies and doubtless he would in his first outbreak have carried the intention into effect without a moment's consideration of the consequences if he had not been restrained in part by corresponding violence on the side of mr brownlow who was himself of an irascible temperament and partly by such arguments and representations as seemed best calculated to dissuade him from his hot-brained purpose then what the devil is to be done said the impetuous doctor when they had rejoined the two ladies are we to pass a vote of thanks to all these vagabonds male and female and beg them to accept a hundred pounds or so apiece as a trifling mark of our esteem and some slight acknowledgment of their kindness to oliver not exactly that rejoined mr brownlow laughing but we must proceed gently and with great care gentleness and care exclaimed the doctor i'd send them one and all to never mind where interposed mr brownlow but reflect whether sending them anywhere is likely to attain the object we have in view 
"'What object?' asked the doctor. "'Simply the discovery of Oliver's parentage, and regaining for him the inheritance of which, if this story be true, he has been fraudulently deprived.' "'Ah!' said Mr. Losburn, cooling himself with his pocket-handkerchief. "'I almost forgot that.' "'You see,' pursued Mr. Brownlow, "'Placing this poor girl entirely out of the question, and supposing it were possible to bring these scoundrels to justice without compromising her safety, what good should we bring about?' "'Hanging a few of them, at least, in all probability,' suggested the doctor, "'and transporting the rest.' "'Very good,' replied Mr. Brownlow, smiling. "'But no doubt they will bring that about for themselves in the fullness of time, and if we step in to forestall them, it seems to me that we shall be performing a very quixotic act in direct opposition to our own interest, or at least to Oliver's, which is the same thing. How? inquired the doctor. Thus, it is quite clear that we shall have extreme difficulty in getting to the bottom of this mystery unless we can bring this man, Monks, upon his knees. That can only be done by stratagem and by catching him when he is not surrounded by these people. For suppose if he were apprehended, we have no proof against him. He is not even, so far as we know, or as the facts appear to us, concerned with the gang in any of their robberies. If he were not discharged, it is very unlikely that he could receive any further punishment than being committed to prison as a rogue and vagabond, and of course ever afterwards his mouth would be so obstinately closed that he might as well, for our purposes, be deaf, dumb, blind, and an idiot. Then, said the doctor impetuously, I put it to you again. Whether you think it reasonable that this promise to the girl should be considered binding, a promise made with the best and kindest intentions, but really—'Do not discuss the point, my dear young lady, pray,' said Mr. Brownlow, interrupting Rose as she was about to speak. "'The promise shall be kept. I don't think it will, in the slightest degree, interfere with our proceedings. But before we can resolve upon any precise course of action, it will be necessary to see the girl, to ascertain from her whether she will point out this monks, on the understanding that he is to be dealt with by us and not by the law, or, if she will not or cannot do that, to procure from her such an account of his haunts and description of his person as will enable us to identify him. She cannot be seen until next Sunday night. This is Tuesday. I would suggest that in the meantime we remain perfectly quiet and keep these matters secret even from Oliver himself. Although Mr. Losburn received with many wry faces a proposal involving a delay of five whole days, he was fain to admit that no better course occurred to him just then, and as both Rose and Mrs. Maylie sided very strongly with Mr. Brownlow, that gentleman's proposition was carried unanimously. "'I should like,' he said, "'to call in the aid of my friend Grimwig. He is a strange creature, but a shrewd one, and might prove of material assistance to us.' I should say that he was bred a lawyer, and quitted the bar in disgust because he had only one brief and a motion of court in twenty years, though whether that is recommendation or not you must determine for yourselves. "'I have no objection to your calling in your friend if I may call in mine,' said the doctor. "'We must put it to the vote,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'Who may he be?' "'That lady's son, and this young lady's very old friend,' said the doctor, motioning towards Mrs. Maylie, and concluding with an expressive glance at her niece. Rose blushed deeply, but she did not make any audible objection to this motion. Possibly she felt in a hopeless minority, and Harry Maylie and Mr. Grimwig were accordingly added to the committee. "'We stay in town, of course,' said Mrs. Maylie, "'while there remains the slightest prospect of prosecuting this inquiry with a chance of success. I will spare neither trouble nor expense in behalf of the object in which we are all so deeply interested and I am content to remain here, if it be for twelve months, so long as you assure me that any hope remains. 
and good rejoined mr brownlow and as i see on the faces about me a disposition to inquire how it happened that i was not in the way to corroborate oliver's tale and had so suddenly left the kingdom let me stipulate that i shall be asked no questions until such time as i may deem it expedient to forestall them by telling my own story believe me i make this request with good reason for i might otherwise excite hopes destined never to be realised and only increase difficulties and disappointments already quite numerous enough come supper has been announced and young oliver who's all alone in the next room will have begun to think by this time that we have wearied of his company and entered into some dark conspiracy to thrust him forth upon the world with these words the old gentleman gave his hand to mrs maylie and escorted her into the supper-room mr losburn followed leading rose and the council was for the present effectually broken up End of chapter forty one Chapter forty two of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. An old acquaintance of Oliver's exhibiting decided marks of genius becomes a public character in the metropolis. Upon the night when Nancy, having lulled Mr. Sykes to sleep, hurried on her self imposed mission to Rose Maylie, there advanced towards London by the Great North Road two persons upon whom it is expedient that this history should bestow some attention they were a man and woman or perhaps they would be better described as a male and female for the former was one of those long-limbed knock-kneed shambling bony people to whom it is difficult to assign any precise age looking as they do when they are yet boys like undergrown men and when they are almost men like overgrown boys the woman was young but of a robust and hardy make as she need have been to bear the weight of the heavy bundle which was strapped to her back her companion was not encumbered with much luggage, as there merely dangled from a stick which he carried over his shoulder a small parcel, wrapped in a common handkerchief, and apparently light enough. This circumstance, added to the length of his legs, which were of unusual extent, enabled him with much ease to keep some half-dozen paces in advance of his companion, to whom he occasionally turned with an impatient jerk of the head, as if reproaching her tardiness, and urging her to greater exertion. Thus they had toiled along the dusty road, taking little heed of any object within sight, save when they stepped aside to allow a wider passage for the mail-coaches which were whirling out of town, until they passed through Highgate Archway, when the foremost traveller stopped and called impatiently to his companion, "'Come on, can't you? What a lazy bones you are, Charlotte!' "'It's a heavy load, I can tell you,' said the female, coming up, almost breathless with fatigue. "'Eddie?' "'What are you talking about? What are you made for?' rejoined the male traveller, changing his own little bundle as he spoke to the other shoulder. "'Oh, there you are, resting again. Well, if it ain't enough to tire anybody's patience out, I don't know what is.' "'Is it much farther?' asked the woman, resting herself against the bank, and looking up with a perspiration streaming from her face. "'Much further. You're as good as there,' said the long-legged tramper, pointing out before him. "'Look there.' those are the lights of london they're a good two mile off at least said the woman despondingly never mind whether they're two mile off or twenty said noah claypole for it was he but get up and come on or i'll kick you and so i give you notice as noah's nose grew redder with anger and as he crossed the road while speaking as if fully prepared to put his threat into execution the woman rose without any further remark and trudged onward by his side where do you mean to stop for the night noah she asked after they had walked a few hundred yards how should i know replied noah 
whose temper had been considerably impaired by walking. "'Near, I hope,' said Charlotte. "'No, not near,' replied Mr. Claypole. "'There, not near, so don't think it.' "'Why not?' "'When I tell you that I don't mean to do a thing, that's enough, without any why or because either,' replied Mr. Claypole, with dignity. "'Well, you didn't be so cross,' said his companion. "'A pretty thing it would be, wouldn't it, to go and stop at the very first public-house outside the town, so the sober, if he came up after us, might poke in his old nose, and have us taken back in a cart with handcuffs on?' said Mr. Claypole, in a jeering tone. "'Now, I shall go and lose myself among the narrowest streets I can find, and not stop till we come to the very out-of-the-wayest house I can set eyes on. God, you may thank your stars I've got a head. For if you hadn't gone at first the wrong road of purpose and come back across country, you'd have been locked up hard and fast a week ago, my lady, and save your right for being a fool. I know I ain't as cunning as you are, replied Charlotte, but don't put all the blame on me and say I should have been locked up. You would have been if I had been anyway. You took the money from the till, you know you did, said Mr. Claypole. I took it for you, Noah, dear, rejoined Charlotte. Did I keep it? asked Mr. Claypole. No, you trusted in me, and let me carry it like a dear, and so you are, said the lady, chucking him under the chin, and drawing her arm through his. This was indeed the case, but as it was not Mr. Claypole's habit to repose a blind and foolish confidence in anybody, it should be observed in justice to that gentleman that he had trusted Charlotte to this extent, in order that, if they were pursued, the money might be found on her which would leave him an opportunity of asserting his innocence of any theft, and would greatly facilitate his chances of escape. Of course he entered at this juncture into no explanation of his motives, and they walked on very lovingly together. In pursuance of this cautious plan Mr. Claypole went on, without halting, until he arrived at the Angel at Islington, where he wisely judged from the crowd of passengers and numbers of vehicles that London began in earnest just pausing to observe which appeared the most crowded streets, and consequently the most to be avoided, he crossed into St. John's Road, and was soon deep in the obscurity of the intricate and dirty ways, which, lying between Gray's Inn Lane and Smithfield, render that part of the town one of the lowest and worst that improvement has left in the midst of London. Through these streets Noah Claypole walked, dragging Charlotte after him, now stepping into the kennel to embrace at a glance the whole external character of some small public-house, now jogging on again, as some fancied appearance induced him to believe it too public for his purpose. At length he stopped in front of one, more humble in appearance and more dirty than any he had yet seen, and having crossed over and surveyed it from the opposite pavement, graciously announced his intention of putting up there for the night. "'So give us the bundle,' said Noah, unstrapping it from the woman's shoulders and slinging it over his own. "'And don't you speak, except when you're spoke to. What's the name of the house? T-H-R. Three what?' "'Cripples,' said Charlotte. Three cripples,' repeated Noah. "'A very good sign, too. Now, then, keep close at my heels and come along.' With these injunctions he pushed the rattling door with his shoulder and entered the house, followed by his companion. There was nobody in the bar but a young Jew, who, with his two elbows on the counter, was reading a dirty newspaper. He stared very hard at Noah, and Noah stared very hard at him. If Noah had been attired in his charity boy's dress, there might have been some reason for the Jew opening his eyes so wide, 
but as he had discarded the coat and badge and wore a short smock-frock over his leathers there seemed no particular reason for his appearance exciting so much attention in a public house is this the three cripples asked noah that's the day of this house replied the jew a gentleman we met on the road coming up from the country recommended us here said noah nudging charlotte perhaps to call her attention to this most ingenious device for attracting respect and perhaps to warn her to betray no surprise we want to sleep here to-night i'm not certain you cad said barney who was the attendant sprite but i'll inquire show us the tap and give us a bit of cold meat and a drop of beer while you're inquiring will you said noah barney complied by ushering them into a small back room and setting the required viands before them having done which he informed the travellers that they could be lodged that night and left the amiable couple to their refreshment now this back room was immediately behind the bar and some steps lower so that any person connected with the house undrawing a small curtain which concealed a single pane of glass fixed in the wall of the last-named apartment about five feet from its flooring could not only look down upon any guests in the back room without any great hazard of being observed the glass being in a dark angle of the wall between which and a large upright beam the observer had to thrust himself but could by applying his ear to the partition ascertain with tolerable distinctness their subject of conversation the landlord of the house had not withdrawn his eye from this place of espial for five minutes and barney had only just returned from making the communication above related when fagin in the course of his evening's business came into the bar to inquire after some of his young pupils hush said barney strangers in the next room strangers repeated the old man in a whisper ah and rubbuds too added barney from the country but something in your way or unbestaked fagin appeared to receive this communication with great interest mounting a stool he cautiously applied his eye to the pane of glass from which secret post he could see mr claypole taking cold beef from the dish and porter from the pot and administering homeopathic doses of both to charlotte who sat patiently by eating and drinking at his pleasure aha he whispered looking round to barney i like that fellow's looks he'd be of use to us he knows how to train the girl already don't make as much noise as a mouse my dear and let me hear him talk let me hear him he again applied his eye to the glass and turning his ear to the partition listened attentively with a subtle and eager look upon his face that might have appertained to some old goblin so i mean to be a gentleman said mr claypole kicking out his legs and continuing a conversation the commencement of which fagin had arrived too late to hear no more jolly old coffin charlotte but a gentleman's life for me and if you like you should be a lady i should like that well enough dear replied charlotte but tills ain't to be emptied every day and people to get cleared off after it tills be blowed said mr claypole there's more things beside tills to be emptied what do you mean asked his companion pockets women's ridicules houses mail coaches banks said mr claypole rising with the porter but you can't do all that dear said charlotte i shall look out to get into company with them as can replied noah they'll be able to make us useful some way or another why you yourself are worth fifty women i never see such a precious sly and deceitful creature as you can be when i let you law how nice it is to hear you say so exclaimed charlotte imprinting a kiss upon his ugly face there that'll do 
Don't you be too affectionate in case I'm close with you, said Noah, disengaging himself with great gravity. I should like to be the captain of some band, and have the whooping of em and following em about, unbeknownst to them. That would suit me, if it was good profit, and if we could only get in with some gentleman of this sort. I say it would be cheap at that twenty pound note you've got, especially as we don't very well know how to get rid of it ourselves. After expressing this opinion, Mr. Claypole looked into the porter-pot with an aspect of deep wisdom, and having well shaken its contents, nodded condescendingly to Charlotte, and took a draught, wherewith he appeared greatly refreshed. He was meditating another when the sudden opening of the door and the appearance of a stranger interrupted him. The stranger was Mr. Fagan, and very amiable he looked, and a very low bow he made as he advanced, and setting himself down at the nearest table, ordered something to drink from the grinning Barney. "'A pleasant night, sir, but cool for the time of year,' said Fagan, rubbing his hands. "'From the country, I see, sir.' "'How do you see that?' asked Noah Claypole. "'We have not so much dust as that in London,' replied Fagan, pointing from Noah's shoes to those of his companion and from them to the two bundles. "'You're a sharp fellow, said Noah. <laughs> "'Only hear that, Charlotte.' "'Why, one need be sharp in this town, my dear,' replied the Jew, sinking his voice into a confidential whisper, "'and that's the truth.' Fagin followed up this remark by striking the side of his nose with his right forefinger, a gesture which Noah attempted to imitate, though not with complete success, in consequence of his own nose not being large enough for the purpose. However, Mr. Fagin seemed to interpret the endeavour as expressing a perfect coincidence with his opinion, and put about the liquor which Barney reappeared with in a very friendly manner. "'Good stuff, that,' observed Mr. Claypole, smacking his lips. "'Dear,' said Fagin, "'a man need be always emptying a till, or pocket, or a woman's reticule, or a house, or a mail-coach, or a bank, if he drinks it regularly.' Mr. Claypole no sooner heard this extract from his own remarks than he fell back in his chair and looked from the Jew to Charlotte with a countenance of ashy paleness and excessive terror. "'Don't mind me, my dear,' said Fagin, drawing his chair close. <laughs> "'How lucky it was it was only me that urged you by chance. It was very lucky it was only me.' "'I didn't take it.' stammered Noah, no longer stretching out his legs like an independent gentleman, but coiling them up as well as he could under his chair. "'It was all her doing. You've got it now, Charlotte. You know you have.' "'No matter who's got it or who did it, my dear,' replied Fagin, glancing nevertheless with a hawk's eye at the girl and at the two bundles. "'I'm in that way myself, and I like you for it.' "'In what way?' asked Mr. Claypole, a little recovering. "'In that way of business,' rejoined Fagin, "'and so are the people of the house. "'You've hit the right nail upon the head, "'and you're as safe here as you could be. "'There is not a safer place in all this town "'than is the cripples, "'that is, when I like to make it so. "'And I have taken a fancy to you and the young woman. "'So I've said the word, "'and you may make your minds easy.' Noah Claypole's mind might have been at ease after this assurance, but his body certainly was not, for he shuffled and writhed about into various uncouth positions, eyeing his new friend meanwhile with mingled fear and suspicion. "'I'll tell you more,' said Fagin, after he had reassured the girl by dint of friendly nods and muttered encouragements. "'I have got a friend that I think can gratify your darling wish, and put you in the right way. 
where you can take whatever department of the business you think will suit you best at first, and be taught all the others. You speak as if you were in earnest, replied Noah. What advantage would it be to me to be anything else? inquired Fagin, shrugging his shoulders. Here, let me have a word with you outside. There's no occasion to trouble ourselves to move, said Noah, getting his legs by gradual degrees abroad again. She'll take the luggage upstairs the while. Charlotte, see to them bundles. This mandate, which had been delivered with great majesty, was obeyed without the slightest demure, and Charlotte made the best of her way off with her packages, while Noah held the door open and watched her out. "'She's kept tolerably well under, ain't she?' he asked as he resumed his seat, in the tone of a keeper who had tamed some wild animal. "'Quite perfect,' rejoined Fagin, clapping him on the shoulder. "'You're a genius, my dear.' "'Why, I suppose if I wasn't I shouldn't be here,' replied Noah. "'But I say, she'll be back if you lose time.' "'Now, what do you think,' said Fagin, "'if you were to like my friend, could you do better than join him?' "'Is he in a good way of business? That's where it is,' responded Noah, winking one of his little eyes. "'The top of the tree, employs a power of hands, has the very best society in the profession.' "'Regular town-maders?' asked Mr. Claypole. "'Not a countryman among them. And I don't think he'd take you, even on my recommendation, if he didn't run rather short of assistance just now, replied Fagin. Should I have to hand over? said Noah, slapping his breeches pocket. It couldn't possibly be done without, replied Fagin, in a most decided manner. Twenty pound, though, it's a lot of money. Not when it's in a note you can't get rid of, retorted Fagin. Number and date taken, I suppose. Payment stopped at the bank. Ah, it's not worth much to him. It'll have to go abroad, and he couldn't sell it for a great deal in the market. When could I see him? asked Noah doubtfully. Tomorrow morning. Where? Here. Hm, said Noah. What's the wages? Live like a gentleman, board and lodgings, pipes and spirits free. Half of all you earn, and half of all the young woman earns, replied Mr. Fagan. Whether Noah Claypole, whose rapacity was none of the least comprehensive, would have acceded even to these glowing terms had he been a perfectly free agent is very doubtful. But as he recollected that, in the event of his refusal, it was in the power of his new acquaintance to give him up to justice immediately, and more unlikely things had come to pass, he gradually relented and said that he thought that would suit him. "'But you see,' observed Noah, "'as she'll be able to do a good deal, I should like to take something very light.' "'A little fancy work,' suggested Fagin. Ah, something of that sort, replied Noah. What do you think would suit me now? Something not too trying for my strength, and not very dangerous, you know. That's the sort of thing. I heard you talk of something in the spy way upon the others, my dear, said Fagin. My friend wants somebody who could do that well, very much. Why, I did mention that, and I shouldn't mind turning my hand to it sometimes, rejoined Mr. Claypole slowly. But it wouldn't pay by itself, you know. That's true, observed the Jew, ruminating, or pretending to ruminate. No, it might not. What do you think, then? asked Noah, anxiously regarding him. Something in a sneaking way, where it was pretty sure work, and not much more risk than being at home. What do you think of the old ladies? asked Fagin. 
there's a good deal of money made in snatching their bags and parcels and running round the corner don't they all out a good deal and scratch sometimes asked noah shaking his head i don't think that would answer my purpose ain't there any other line open stop said fagin laying his hand on noah's knee the kitchen lay what's that demanded mr claypole the kitchen lay my dear said fagin is the young children that sent on errands by their mothers with sixpences and shillings and the lay is just to take their money away they've always got it ready in their hands then knock em into the kennel and walk off very slow as if there were nothing else to matter but a child fallen down and hurt itself ha 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 roared mr claypole kicking up his legs in ecstasy lord that's the very thing to be sure it is replied fagin and you can have a few good beats chalked out in camden town and battle bridge and neighbourhoods like that with it always going errands and you can upset as many kitchens as you want any hour in the day <laughs> with this fagin poked mr claypole in the side and they joined in a burst of laughter both long and loud well that's all right said noah when he had recovered himself and charlotte had returned what time to-morrow shall we say will ten do asked fagin adding as mr claypole nodded assent what name shall i tell my good friend mr bolter replied noah who had prepared himself for such emergency mr morris bolter this is mrs bolter mrs bolter's humble servant said fagin bowing with grotesque politeness i hope i shall know her better very shortly do you hear the gentleman charlotte thundered mr claypole yes noah dear replied mrs bolter extending her hand she calls me noah as a sort of fond way of talking said mr morris bolter late claypole turning to fagin you understand oh yes i understand perfectly replied fagin telling the truth for once good-night good-night with many adieus and good wishes mr fagin went his way noah claypole bespeaking his good lady's attention proceeded to enlighten her relative to the arrangements he had made with all that haughtiness and air of superiority becoming not only to a member of the sterner sex but a gentleman who appreciated the dignity of a special appointment on the kitchen lay in london and its vicinity End of chapter forty two